I am uh, the senior pastor down at Parker Evangelical Presbyterian Church just south of here, south and east. And um, you are here in turning, transforming sessions into spiritual communities. Hopefully that's why you're here. There's other, there's other things obviously going on as well. So um, hopefully that's why you're here. Come on in, y'all. I know people are still milling about, it looks like, out, outside there. But um, uh, the goal for our time together is really to um, give you guys a vision of uh, some of the things that we've hit on at Pepsi in terms of really being able to create some spiritual community in some very successful ways. Um, but at the same time, I recognize every context is different, so I'm not here to propose a one-size-fits-all kind of model. And so, so like what happened this last session was um, we got into some question and answer time that really lasted the last half hour, 40 minutes of our time together. I'd love to do the same thing there. Really uh, deal with some of the, maybe the questions that you guys have, some of the issues that you may have. As we go along the way, um, please feel free to like raise your hand and interrupt me and hey, like, you know, can you answer this or can you answer that or touch on this or touch on that? I'm happy to do that as well. Um, I love to kind of teach in a dialogical manner, and so um, I, I don't like to lecture. I'm a professor as well at seminary, and I don't like to lecture. I like to have dialogue. So if we could do that, that would be great. But I'm hoping that this time is just fruitful for you all. So why don't I um, begin just with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. So Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the work of ministry that you entrusted to our hands. Thank you that the local church is really the, the primary vehicle for the evangelization of the world. And so God, uh, as we talk today about how at the heart of that local church, the board of elders, the session, how that, that group of people can truly become spiritual leaders and, and have spiritual community together, we pray that you would just make our time fruitful and prompt whatever questions God need to be asked, uh, deal with whatever issues need to be dealt with, and uh, hopefully what, what I have to say is uh, helpful on some level for these folks, and just give you thanks uh, for our time together, and praise you for this General Assembly week, and all that we're going to get a chance to hear and learn and, and grow from, and so Lord, we lift these things up to you in the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Hey, we're, since we're a smaller group, why don't we introduce ourselves? The last group was kind of packed out, so can we start over here and tell us, tell us kind of where you're from, what church you're from, uh, ruling elder, teaching elder, that kind of stuff. Name? I'm uh, Clay Smith, uh, teaching elder, pastor at Central Pres in St. Louis. Awesome, Clay. Welcome. I'm Gary Smith. No relation. No relation, okay. I'm ruling Elder Central Press in St. Paul. Awesome, Gary. Welcome, guys. Doug Dempsey, Ruling Elder Faith EBC, Brooksville, from the Florida, Okay, great. Anthony Alonso from Faith Church in Brooksville as well. Okay. Great. Awesome. So, Missouri, Florida? Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Paul Becker. Great, Paul. Teaching Elder, Bakersfield Presbyterian Church. Awesome. Presbyterian Alligator. Great. Ruling Elder. Great. Let's go here. Uh, Rob Leslin from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, uh, Presbyterian Midland. Great. Welcome, Rob. Uh, Jeff Cook, teaching Elder from Lake Forest Church uh, right outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah. Working with uh, Mike. Don't yeah. Really <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, Jeff. Best Welcome. ABC, Seriously. Uh, no doubt. Your beer game's nice. Go ahead there, Paul. I'm Paul Bamel, uh, teaching Elder in the Presbyterian of the East. As I say, just got started, so congratulations again, man. Yeah, yeah, right. You're, you're getting started off on the right foot, hopefully. Or the wrong foot, and it could just be a disaster. Hopefully not, right? Go ahead, yeah. Uh, my name's Andy Van Arsdell. I work at a church in Corvallis, Oregon as a pastoral resident, so I'm actually in the ordination. 
process. Awesome, Andy. Well, welcome, brother. Let's go all the way over here. Okay. Great. Welcome, Matthew. Steve Morris, ruling over Presbyterian of the Pacific Southwest in Orange, California. Awesome. John Craft, teaching elder, the one and only Church in Utah, just north of South Park City. Great. Perfect. Go ahead. John Mabry, teaching elder, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian in Monroe, Louisiana, Gulf awesome. Southwest. Awesome. John, welcome. Right on, Jason. And you're at Eric's uh, old church, right? Eric Oman, just a good friend of mine, just retired there. Right. That's awesome, Jason. Welcome. George Callum Carrion from uh, Moline, Illinois, which is right on the Mississippi where you've seen all the flooding. Yeah. In two months. Davenport, Iowa, one side. Personalized Presbyterian Church is in Moline, Illinois. Wow. Welcome. Rob Perkins from uh, the East Bay of San Francisco. Great, Rob. Awesome. Jenny Milligan, I'm a pastor's wife at Little Britain Presbyterian in Peachtree. Great. Welcome, Jenny. Harvey Reinhold, Presbyterian of the Midwest, Evangelical Unity Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Awesome. Laura Uthall, I'm Center Point Community Church in Roseville, California. Great. Welcome, Laura. Stan Huey, uh, Hope Church, Fredericksburg, Virginia, Ruling Elvin. Great. Ray Scott, Hope Church, Fredericksburg, Virginia, Ruling Elvin. Great. Dennis Tarr, teaching pastor, Elvin. Uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church in Orange, California, and grateful for this outlet. There are not many in the world. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, right? I know. I was looking, I was, I was seeing that earlier. That's exactly right. Well, uh, hopefully this fan isn't too loud. It, it got a little warm, I think, last time. So um, if, if I need to speak up, let me, let me know. I'm typically, no one's ever accused me of being too quiet. Um, so like I said, we'll go through, go through here. So just again, um, again, just to uh, share with you a little bit about myself. Um, so I've been at this, uh, this particular conversation has been a passion of mine for over 20 years now. Um, I uh, went to seminary uh, at Princeton. I was in the PCUSA and served a church in uh, Hamilton Square, New Jersey that uh, was in need of revitalization. I've always kind of been involved in revitalization work or for most of my career. And um, so, so much of that, that whole revitalization conversation really does, in my opinion, revolve around um, turning ruling elders into spiritual leaders and how do you do that and how do you help them form spiritual community. And so coming out of seminary, um, after serving at Hamilton Square for a couple of years, uh, we went down to Mobile, Alabama, served a very small church there, about 80 folks, uh, all over the age of 65. We had the only kids. They, you know, I was telling the first group that, um, you know, when I first got there, we had our first session meeting and I'm like, okay, where do you guys see yourselves in like 10 years? I was like 29. <laughs> and they're like, with well, a for sale sign out front. And I'm like, Ah, that would have been great to know during the interview process. Like, thanks for, you know. Anyway, so um, we had a great six-year run there and really saw God do a lot, um, again, around this conversation. And then uh, the Lord took us up to Madison, Wisconsin, and we did some church planning work, found out that I'm a terrible church planner. It was the worst two years of our lives. Uh, it was just a total disaster. And um, 
So yeah, that was really, really challenging. And then the Lord brought us out of the PCUSA into the EPC to this church where I currently serve, Parker EPC, down again southeast Denver here, and been there the last 10 years and really been able to see uh, a lot of fruit as we've, again, engaged specifically and intentionally around this whole conversation of how do we help our elders really grow spiritually. And, um, and, and Parker's a little bit of a larger church. And so what I've discovered, I've been at mega churches and then churches like Parker that are sort of medium size on some level and then really small churches, is that um, this is really scalable. All right, so don't think this is just something that only big churches are able to do or those kinds of things. I think it's very scalable and we can have some specific questions or conversation around that at, at, towards the end of our time together today. If you've got like some questions about like, yeah, like, you know, one guy after the, the first session say, so I'm the only staff member and, you know, I'm in a rural community and, you know, very small church. And so how do I, how do I work these things out? And there's ways to do that. And like I said, I've got some experience with that based on my own history uh, along the way. Um, and so what we're doing here is, is really trying to ask the question, what does it mean to really do spiritual community together as an elder board? And not just a business meeting. And again, I don't know what your experience is in the church, but um, especially in the PCUSA where I was, um, the, the, the session meetings were typically basically business meetings um, bookended by prayer. That was about the only spiritual thing we did. And other than that, we talked all about buildings and grounds and programs and those kinds of things, right? Um, and so, um, and a lot of those churches are dying. And I, I was like, there's got to be a different way. There's got to be a better way to do this. And so I started doing doctoral research into this. This is where I got my doctorate as well, is around this whole conversation. Ran across a book that I would really commend to you. Um, it's an old book um, written in the 1890s by a guy named A.B. Bruce. It's called The Training of the Twelve. I think it's the best book on discipleship that's ever been written. Um, I looked at a lot of, I did a whole, you know, literature survey for my doctoral dissertation, so I was pretty up to date, at least at that point in time, on what books are out there. And I never did run across a book better than Bruce's. Um, and basically what he did, again, not rocket science, he just basically looked in the Gospels and saw how Jesus trained the 12 disciples. And he's like, maybe we should just do that. So, again, you know, like, not, like, really hard, not, you know, I mean, he just said, let's just take that seriously, and, boy, just a, a life-changing kind of book, and so, I encourage you to read that, that's where I'm getting a lot of this stuff, or at least that's what has spring more to be into this conversation, at least. Um, the first call of the ruling elder in the church is to seek the mind of Christ, or to represent the mind of Christ, right? Y'all know that? Right. Book of Government. Chapter 9-8 in our new book of government, okay? I, I, I think this is so important, and I think this shapes everything. In the PCUSA, this was not as clear as it is in the EPC. In the EPC, we have made this very clear. We've said front and center, the primary job of the ruling elder is to represent the mind of Christ. So then that begs the question, what is the mind of Christ? And how do we know? And so... You know, I, I don't know where you go to discern what is the mind of Christ. I think Scripture gives us our answers pretty clearly. So I go to passages like John 17, where Jesus is clearly praying for his church. And what's he pray for in John 17? Unity. Unity, right? So the mind of Christ is going to be unified. There's not going to be division in the mind of Christ. I, I, don't, I don't believe that. And Jesus prays that we would be one, just as he and the Father are one. That's what he, that's what he desires for us. This is the mind of Christ for his church. I go to places like Philippians 2, verses uh, 5 through 11, where it talks about have the same mind among yourselves that, was, that is yours in Christ Jesus. And, and what is Philippians 2, 5 through 11 all about? 
yeah, humility, serving one another, right? I mean, considering others better than yourselves. Like, like that's what it's about. So we should see if that's the mind of Christ. That's what Paul says, right? Have this mind among yourselves. That is yours in Christ Jesus. If that's what it is, we should see that reflected in our eldership. We should see that reflected in our session meetings. We should actually see that get worked out in practice, okay? And so that, that is something that I am very passionate about. And so as we talk about what it means to do session, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about primarily seeking the mind of Christ, not primarily running programs, although programs are important, not primarily running like, you know, the, making sure the bank account stays healthy and the grounds stay clean and all that kind of stuff, although that stuff's important too. What we're talking about around a session table now is that we would have and seek the mind of Christ together. Now, how does one do that? Well, again, the only way I know how to do that is through the spiritual disciplines, right? Things like prayer, right? So we, we want to seek the mind of Christ through prayer. So you think about, you know, Matthew 7, 7, right? Where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be open." I believe that if we ask Jesus for the mind of Christ, He will give it to us. He will give it to us. I can ask Jesus for a lot of things and he won't give those things to me, but I believe this is one thing he will absolutely give to us if we are asking for it, if we are seeking it together. Um, we need wisdom, right? Wisdom is reflected in the mind of Christ. James 1.5 says, if any of us lack wisdom, let's ask God. He'll give it to us generously. Like We don't have to like, worry about him being stingy about it. So it's going to be wisdom. It's going to be you know, gained through prayer. It's going to be looking at Scripture. 1 John 4.1 encourages us to test the spirits to see if they're from God, right? So if we're having a conversation and, and we're wrestling with a deep-seated issue, we, we, we need to make sure that we are running whatever that issue is through the grid of Scripture so that we can identify what the mind of Christ is. Give you an example on that. I was telling the first group that we are starting a, a Christian counseling center. It's going to be licensed by the state of Colorado after the first of the year, and we've done this whole capital campaign thing and all that stuff. And as we were in these conversations with our county, um, asking what the gaps in service were in our mental health you know, structure in our county, they said, you know, what we really need is if someone could do marriage and family therapy for those who are on Medicaid and the suburban poor, that would be awesome. And I thought to myself, because I used to be in hospital administration, there is no way I'm going to touch Medicaid with a 10-foot pole. So then I come back. And thankfully, one of my, uh, my administrators, she's, uh, she's uh, uh, on our executive team, she's like, really? Really, we're not going to serve like the least of these? You haven't read that somewhere? And I'm like, dang it, right. You know, I've got to run that through Scripture first, you know. So even though I don't want to go through all the pain of having to become a Medicaid, you know, approved facility and all that stuff, because I know what that's going to involve, she's absolutely right. When you run through the grid of Scripture, that's exactly God's heart. And so that's exactly what we need to do, right? So that's an example then um, of what we try and do when we talk about running and testing every spirit to see if it's from the Lord. We've got to run through the grid of Scripture. Yes, sir? Does that um, run in conflict, does bringing in Medicaid run in conflict with your biblical, uh, you know? Not where we are, not right now. It could be in the future. We're working on a legal framework to address some of those issues, practically speaking, but not right now, not where we are. At least there seems to be an opening right now, so we're praying that stays open. <laughs> so we can serve the poorest of the poor. Um, we, in order to seek the mind of Christ together, we have to have relationships, right? If, if I don't know you and I don't trust you, then it's going to be really hard for us to find any kind of unity in Christ together. 
And so relationships are key to this whole process. I think about Acts 2, 42 through 47, where the early church, what the, what's the first thing they do? 3,000 people are saved. And what's like the very next words are like, and they began to get together and study the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking the bread and the prayers. Like, that's what they did. They just began getting together and building those relationships. So I think it's very relational. And then finally, it's got, you know, there's got to be holiness, like a pursuit of holiness here. And, and, that, and that, in some way, is contingent upon relationships because in order for me to pursue holiness in community, I'm going to have to be willing to expose myself to these brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to have to be willing to be vulnerable about my sin issues so that they can hold me accountable and encourage me along the way and vice versa. So that's another piece of this puzzle. I love what Hebrews talks about. Hebrews 12.4 talks about without holiness, we cannot see God. All right? We cannot see the face of God without pursuing holiness. Holiness. So I think those things are really essential when you start to talk about the mind of Christ. If I am enslaved to some kind of sin, then it's going to be really difficult for me to, to really know the mind of Christ because all, all of that's clogged up now by, the, the, by whatever thing is really in front of my face and is enslaving me. And so that holiness piece, I think, is, is really big. So, again, how do we do those things as a church? How does Pepsi do those things? Um, well, just to kind of give you a sense of our session rhythm, um, we meet once a month, and we meet for formally four hours. Informally, it usually ends up being about five or six hours together. Um, that may sound like this unbelievable amount of time, like you're like, no way! We have so much fun, the five or six hours is because I can't get them to go home. So we start at six o'clock, we have a meal together, it's usually prepared by someone on the session, we trade that around. Um, we spend the first 45 minutes to an hour eating together, fellowshipping together, getting caught up, and then praying together. And our associate pastor, who's also a teaching elder, sits on session. He brings the prayer concerns of the church. He has his list of praises and prayers. We add to that our personal praises and prayers, and then we pray together uh, for, the, for the church, for one another, those kinds of things. That's usually about the first hour or so, so 6 to 7 o'clock. Then about 7 o'clock or 6.45, we move into a time of study. We're either studying a book of the Bible or another book. Right now we're doing Dallas Willard's um, Divine Conspiracy. Um, and we will, we will spend the next hour and a half to two hours studying that book um, and engaged around that. And that takes us to about 9 o'clock, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, and then from 9 to about 9.30, 9.45, we'll tackle whatever business is before us, whatever decisions that we have to make. Um, that usually goes very, very fast because we've spent so much time fellowshipping and in prayer and in study together that by that point in time, our hearts are pretty united. And so, like, the differences that we might have on a particular issue are pretty much faded and we can get through that stuff pretty quickly. And then about 9.30, 9.45, we close in prayer and we head out to a, a local bar and we grab a drink together, those who can. And again, we typically hang out for another hour, two hours, depends on how much fun we're having. Um, and it's just a great rhythm for us. And that happens every month. Okay? Now, in between that monthly rhythm, um, I am meeting personally with every elder. We have nine elders on our session. I'm meeting personally with every elder once a quarter. And that only purpose for our meeting together is for one-on-one -on -one discipleship. So we're talking about um, what's God been teaching them? Where are the struggles in their life? What, what issues are they facing? What's God been saying to them in prayer? What are they studying you know, in the Word? Those kinds of things. And they're asking me the same questions, by the way. 
and we're just engaging one another around this spiritual conversation, really encouraging each other and empowering each other. That's happening once a quarter at least. Sometimes I meet more often. It depends on how often folks want to meet or how much time they've got, but at least once a quarter. So that provides a relational base now out of which, again, community begins to form, all right? And you can see even how we order our session meetings is for the purpose of building spiritual community far more than, again, making decisions and those kinds of things, all right? Again, not that decisions are, are not important. They are. But the most important thing we can do is really study the Word of God together, pray together, seek the mind of Christ together, so that as we are starting to tackle some big issues. And in our culture, and I'm sure in your culture, there are large, large issues out there looming that I believe the church should be on the forefront of, not lagging behind. We should be on the forefront of the sexuality issue. We should be on the forefront of the race issue. We should be on the forefront of the poverty issue. We should be on the forefront of some of these things, leading the way with the gospel. Right? The only way to do that is to carve out space together in community to actually tackle some of those things and really wrestle with them yourself so that when you actually go out and engage your community, now you're doing it in a unified way that really, um, that really is, provides a blessing then um, to your community and the folks that you're going to be going out and ministering to. Um, so, so just some questions to think about really practically. Like what role does prayer play in your meetings? Is it like an open and a close? Is there actually engaged, sustained prayer for one another, for your community, for the lost? I will tell you, that's like actually, a, it, it drives me crazy. I, I uh, teach evangelism and mission at Denver Seminary. And one of our real weaknesses as a church is we do not pray for the lost. It, we pray for the health concerns of our people all the time. And I love that. But man, we don't pray for the lost enough. And, and, and so that's a real... And that's a thing for me. And so I'm like, okay, like how do, I, how do I help our folks just think beyond the four walls of the church, you know? And so we're learning and growing in that respect, um, in that area, in, in our, in just in our own journey. Um, so what role does prayer play in your meeting? What role does the Bible play? I mean, do people actually bring a Bible to the meeting? When you're locked in a discussion over something, does the Bible get opened? Or is it just like going off of human wisdom? Okay? Like, that's a real question. Like, I actually pay attention to those things when I'm moderating session. I'm sitting there and I'm watching. And I'm like, are we getting out our Bibles? If we're not, then like, we're probably headed down the wrong track. Okay? And so let's get out our Bibles. Let's think through these, some of these things. Um, and oh, by the way, if any of you want like this PowerPoint afterwards, just shoot me an email. I'm happy to give it to you. Like, none of this stuff is mine. It's stuff I've just been working on. It's, I'm happy to share it. How long are your meetings and why? All right? If, if, if you have a group of folks who are like, let's meet for as short a period of time as possible, that tells you something. That tells you something about the quality of relationships that they've got with one another. If you have like these marathon meetings where people are like walking out the door dragging, that tells you something about your own leadership of those meetings. You're not doing a very effective job. All right? People should be given, they should experience life in these meetings. They should be walking out the door with more life than what they walked in with. All right, one of the things that I really look for is, is when people experience our session meetings, like that's why we go and have a drink afterwards. Like, did they enjoy the time? We might have dealt with some really serious issues, but did they, did they enjoy the time? Did they feel like the work we were doing was significant? And it made an impact. And then another thing that I measure um, success off of is when uh, our, el our elders rotate off session, do they, do, do they grieve? Or are they like, thank God, like I, I escaped my prison sentence, right? 
Um, I want them to grieve when they rotate off session. I want them to feel the loss of that. And thankfully our elders really do. We have a celebration dinner at the end of every year and our elders typically will serve two terms. Uh, it's pretty rare that they'll only serve one. In fact, we've only had a handful in the time that I've been there. And, and when, they, when they're rotating off, they're just grieving. They're, just, they're weeping. They're, it's the loss of a small group is really what it is. And I would say that the, the session of our church is, is the best small group in our church. And that's by design. By design. Okay? So, so, so you get something to think about. How long are our meetings? And, 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 and how, how effective are they? What is the goal of our meeting? Why are we meeting? That's a, that's a question that you would think we would ask more. <laughs> but we don't. What's the goal? What, how, do we do, how do we know if we're successful? Um, that's a really important question. And something for you to ponder and pray over. How do you handle conflict? Um, is there zero conflict? That's a bad thing. If there's zero conflict in your session meeting, you're not going deep enough. You're not dealing with significant enough issues. There's too much stuff out there in the world today that the church should have to be dealing with. And, and it's, it's, I'm telling you, there should be conflict. Healthy conflict, not yelling at each other, but healthy conflict, passionate conflict. I mean, you should be, if there's no conflict, you're, not de- you're just not dealing with reality. Then I'm probably on some level. It's probably a good sign. If there's too much conflict or it's unhealthy conflict, people are getting personal, all that stuff, that's not good either. So how do you handle conflict? How do you do that well? How do you foster an environment where there can be passionate debate? around real life stuff and where the gospel is intersecting real life. And, um, and at the end of the day, you can still make decisions with unity. Not unanimity. Not everybody being the same, but unity. Like a spiritual unity that transcends unanimity. And that really gets to this last question, which is a really key one, is how do you make decisions? How do you make decisions? What's your decision-making apparatus? Is it parliamentary procedure? Is it a consensus model? What, what, what is it? Make sure everybody is on the same page in terms of how we are going to make decisions. And does our decision-making model reflect the truths of Scripture? Because if our first call is to seek the mind of Christ together and we know the mind of Christ is undivided, then how in the world can we end up with six, four decisions and be okay with that? Like that, that to me is why we got rid of parliamentary procedure. We just said that like that, a winner-takes-all approach does not we don't think best reflect the mind of Christ because the mind of Christ is undivided. So let's do the hard work of trying to find some kind of consensus um, that we can agree to and have unity around. And that means taking a lot of time sometimes um, because we want everybody to be there on board. We don't want to leave anybody behind. So just give you a couple examples of how that works out. When I first got to Pepsi, Pepsi was in a pretty conflicted space because of um, just some, some turmoil they had gone through. And I, I, was, I walked in oblivious. I didn't know what their decision-making mo- matrix was. I didn't even think to ask. I just assumed it was parliamentary procedure like every other Presbyterian church I've been part of. And I was very comfortable in that world. And so in the first couple of months, we came on a pretty major decision. Um, like it was about changing some of our worship service times and some of that kind of stuff. So it wasn't insignificant. And we did the discussion and we had the vote and it was like 6-4. And I mean, I was good. Like, whatever. Like, that's parliamentary procedure. That's how it works, right? <laughs> Walked in the next day, and an elder left me this voicemail. <laughs> I mean, just dressed me down. Cursing and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it was not good. It didn't make me feel good at all. I was like, oh, man, I've already, like, stepped on this landmine. And so we had to gather back together and take a step back and say, okay, let's put aside the decision we made. Like, let's talk about how we're going to make decisions. Make sure we're all on the same page. 
as to how we're going to seek the mind of Christ together. And what I didn't realize is that through all the turmoil they had gone through, they had really settled in on this consensus model. Um, and they just didn't think to tell me. And I mean, whatever. I mean, it was, we got beyond it. And it was good. And that consensus model has been really rich for us. Again, we don't pursue unanimity. That's not what we're after. Our, our elders are passionate. They are passionate about the issues. They are very strong-willed. They all have their own opinions. And they're not shy. And that's great. And so we get into it. Um, but the goal is always, um, again, to seek the mind of Christ. And so one of the things that we learn to di differentiate is between an opinion and a conviction. If I have an opinion on something, that, that's all well and good, all right? But my opinion may be different than, you know, Jeff's opinion, maybe, I mean, anybody's opinion. If I've got a conviction on something, now that's, that's the Holy Spirit, and we don't believe we're going to have differences around convictions. And so what that has done for us is allowed us to really find these places of unity. Even though we may not always agree about how we're going to land somewhere, we still find these places of unity that we can all affirm. And if there's even one elder who's not comfortable with the decision and is unwilling to, to speak with one voice, they can, they can stop the process and we'll just keep praying. And we'll pray for another month. And we'll just keep doing that hard work of, of bringing unity. And we've been so blessed by that. Um, I, I, was, I gave one example in the first uh, group, and I'll give it to you here. Um, Bob Meyer, who has been an elder at our church forever and ever and ever, um, he is known as, uh, he was the treasurer of our presbytery. This guy's like the world's, like, biggest tightwad, all right? He is the bean counter. He is like the, I mean, he like knows where every penny is and he's been amazing, but like that is who he is, right? And the first year I was at Pepsi, we were in the red. We were struggling financially, wondering like how it was all going to work out, this budget we had put together. And then the missions team comes to us in April before General Assembly that summer, which was at Cherry Hills that year, and said, um, we, uh, we want to give 10% of our morning offering on this particular date away to all the missionaries who are coming into town for General Assembly just to bless them. And we're like, ah, we don't have that kind of money. And so we're still sweating it and all that kind of stuff. And so, well, but the mission committee, we'll, we'll go to prayer. So we went to prayer. Kind of like as we were praying together, the Lord started to move. And we start, okay, we start feeling more comfortable with like, okay, well, like, yeah, like we'll give 10% to the missionaries. And Bob Meyer speaks up and he, I'll never forget this. And he's like, yeah, that's not enough. He's like, we get to give the whole thing. And we were like, what are you talking about? And like, what happened to Bob Meyer? Like, no way, right? And, and yet, there was this incredible movement of the Spirit in the room. You could sense it. It was almost palpable as everybody was like, yes. And they made the decision to do that. And people were like selling property and and like jewel, women were selling jewelry to participate in this offering to give above and beyond their normal giving. And we had our largest offering of the year, which was really then hard to give away, right? Because we're in the red and we're wondering how we're going to make it. And we're like, oh no. I mean, oh yes, but oh no. And, um, but we gave it. And you know what? The Lord, I believe, at that moment really shifted some things in our church. And we have, we have never wanted for money since. But it was, it was because one elder spoke a word to us as we were praying together and this consensus built around it and as a result this unity the Lord has done some amazing things and I've been there 10 years now and our, bu our budget is more than doubled in the 10 years that I've been there and it's just been unbelievable and that's not a praise to me it's just a praise to what the Lord has done and I think it started with Bob Meyer and so these, that's how movements of the Spirit start friends and that 
that doesn't happen, at least in my experience, when you're in parliamentary procedure. Right? Because everybody's got an opinion on everything and it wasn't wise and it, it wasn't, humanly speaking, the right decision to make. It was the wrong decision to make. But it's what the Spirit wanted. And as we opened ourselves up to the Spirit, He provided it in an, in an amazing way. So, just gives you an example of what can happen and how your decision-making matrix, whatever that is, can either draw you closer to the mind of Christ or push you further away. Again, I'm not saying that Robert's Rules of Order isn't good. I'm just saying that like, these are just things you've got to think about. You've got to process, and you've got to think about why we do what we do, um, and what is it we're really going after. Um, so, you, you, know, you know about our session meeting now, and kind of some of the things that we've gone through. Um, where does all this start? Well, it, it all starts for us in the nominating process. Okay, and the nominating process, where does that start? It actually doesn't start with the nominating committee. For us, the nomination process begins as soon as like a new member hits our doorway. And as soon as like we have new people come in, we always have on our radar screen, like is this someone who has potential to be a leader for us down the road? And if they do, let's start pouring into them. Let's start raising them up. Let's start mentoring them. Let's start, let's start equipping them, getting them ready for the day when God is going to raise them up and maybe serve on our elder board or maybe serve as a deacon or some other leadership position in our church. Thankfully, we've got, again, um, a great group of elders. And so they lead this process. And two of our session elders lead it. And they lead this whole committee. And it's, it's less about the work that they do and really more about the discipleship of this team of folks and the committee like your committees is made up of you know people from the congregation and the deacons and like all these different groups right they all come together and these two elders are in charge of really discipling them really pointing them to prayer really studying and reflecting and um, praying over the qualifications for elders that are in you know Titus and Timothy and the scriptures right what kinds of character and qualities are we looking for in an elder that kind of thing um, we interview our elders potential elders um, not everybody makes it like we do pretty in-depth interviews with folks it's a pretty robust process um, and that's a good thing and um, we, we try and set the expectations in that process so they know exactly what they're stepping into role clarity by the way is a really big thing for me Everybody understanding, like, here's the role of an elder, here's the role of a deacon, here's the role of a staff member. And so, we don't, our elders are there to be spiritual leaders. That is their role. They're, I always talk to our staff about this. Our elders lead, staff implement. I don't want elders implementing and I don't want staff leading. Like, the, the, these are the roles, these are the lanes that you get to run in. Run in your lane. Run in your lane for all your worth, but run in your lane. All right? And so we've had, we've had instances where we've had staff members who try and like, you know, cast a vision for their area that's, no, you don't get to cast vision for your area. The elders have a vision. Go implement it. That's, that's your job. You know, well, we don't like that. Okay, well, then maybe you don't need to work here. It's fine. Like, I mean, that's, there's, no, there's no shame in that. But elders lead, staff implement. And vice versa. We've had elders that have tried to like jump into implementation. And I tell them, stay out of that. You gotta stay at the thirty thousand foot level where we need you. you gotta, you know, and and that has been a helpful thing. So role clarity is a big one. All right, you want to set great expectations. So that nominating process is a key part of this. You want to nominate folks. You want to identify those folks. You want to, um, you want to be able to help them understand what it is that they're walking into. Okay, so like like at our church, a pretty sizable church, and so like I said, we have elders, we have staff. But when I was in the small church that I was served, where I was the only staff member. Um, we, uh, that church overlooked Anna Mobile, 
was a unicameral system. That means they didn't have deacons. They just had elders. So the elders were in charge of all the spiritual leadership, all the deacon work, and they, were, uh, and they all led committees. All right? And we had 12 elders for 80 people, and we could barely fill our slots every year. It was like pulling teeth, trying to get people to fill slots, right? And so as I began my doctoral work and thinking about all this stuff, I realized this key, this role clarity thing is a big thing. And so what we did was we went to a system where we had six elders, six deacons, and six committee chairs. We brought them all through the same nominating process. We affirmed them all up in front of the congregation. And because each role was very specific, spiritual leadership, servant leadership, and then committee leadership, even though we were asking for 18 people now versus 12, we didn't have any problem filling those slots. People were so excited because finally they understood what was expected of them. They understood they weren't going to be given everything to do in the church, but just that, that one thing, and they could do it really, really well, and it was awesome. And so this is scalable, again, down to a smaller church. If you serve a smaller church, it can happen. It's not just about staff. You, you basically staff your church at a small church with volunteers, right? That's essentially what you do. So give them role clarity. Help them understand their lane. You'll find that it's a, a real helpful thing. And um, it really helps your elders. Because what I find is that elders, um, given the choice between... Um, Doing stuff for the church versus leading the church, they're always going to lean towards the doing. Because if your elders are like my elders, they're great at doing. Like they're professionally, like that's where most of their professional successes come is because they're great doers. So they're very comfortable in that world. They're not as comfortable in the spiritual leadership world. And because they're not as comfortable, they're naturally going to lean away from that towards the doing Okay, and we need them to be the leaders. And so, again, you want to reserve that role for them and really, really kind of force them to live into that a bit rather than, like I said, make them committee leaders too because they'll always then go that route. Um, at least that's my, my experience. That may or may not be yours. Um, once once the, the, the nomination, you know, like I said, that, that whole process is undergone and that kind of thing, we start to think about training. Although, again, we, we do this early on. Um, we don't just sort of um, start it when the nominations process begins. Again, when new members hit our church, um, Will Freischlag, who's kind of in charge of our member um, assimilation, all that kind of stuff, he'll, he'll say, Doug, you know, you got to make sure Drew and Katie are on your radar screen. I think they've got great potential. Or so-and-so, or this person, or that person, or whatever reason. So we start to then, again, intentionally pour into them. We start to mentor them. We start to disciple them. We start to essentially recruit them, talk to them about what it's going to be like to lead our church and how much we need that, those kinds of things. And so this discipleship of future leaders is a key thing for us. This is a real passion of mine. And so I probably disciple currently between 10 to 12 folks in our church personally. And I meet with them once a month. And we're talking about what is God doing in their life and what are they reading in Scripture and how is God growing them and what are their issues that they're dealing with and vice versa. I'm telling them all my stuff as well. And in that way, we are discipling one another and we are getting these future leaders prepared for the day when they might get nominated or they might get asked to serve. And we want, we want to get them ready for that day. We want them engaged, okay? And so it's not a surprise for them. It's not sprung on them, those kinds of things. Like I said, that primarily happens through regular one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And I actually think this is the primary role of pastor or the senior pastor. And I talk to far too many pastors who tell me, if you ask them the question, who are you personally discipling? No one. And I think that's so problematic. And it's so not aligned with the way of Jesus. Yes. And that, so that's significant. 
It's significant. If you're not discipling anyone personally, yourself, I think you got real, I think your priorities are out of whack. And you can tell me you're too busy, and that's fine. I'm busy too. All right? I have a senior pastor of a church. I'm an associate professor down at Denver Seminary. I go to Africa a couple times a year. I'm on the mission board, all that kind of stuff. I'm busy too. Okay? It's all in how you prioritize your time. And are you prioritizing the things that the Bible tells us to prioritize? And discipleship, the Great Commission, has got to be right there at the top of the list. Okay? So this is deeply significant as far as I'm concerned. Process. Yeah. Um, you have a, uh, an officer nominating committee. Yep. Okay. So, but you've been mentoring. Yep. Other elders yep. have been mentoring. Yep. Yep. So there's got to be a sense in which, when it all comes down to it, yep. and I don't know how it works for you, but I'm imagining you got to feed these names Absolutely. to the officer nominated yeah. committee. Uh-huh. Basically, say to the committee, "This is who we want." Yeah. Well, we don't say this is who we want per se, but we have a we have a whole list of names we can feed. That's exactly right. When we solicit nominations, our elders are putting in nominees. I'm putting in nominees. Our staff is putting in nominees. And then our nominee, and, and most of these nominees that are showing up on the list are folks who've been discipled. Not just by me, but by my associate pastor, by other folks, elder, elders, that kind of thing. And so that establishes this really strong pool of candidates. Um, and, you know, I, what I find is that, you know, these are often the names the, the, the congregation's submitting to because they see it as well. They see the leadership potential in these folks. And so then our nominating committee begins to stack rank them, right? Um, after a prayerful process and you know discussion process and all that kind of stuff and then they go through the interviews and all that kind of thing um, they do give Gary my associate pastor and myself a list of folks that have been nominated and if there's anything confidential pastorally that we know we you know will veto them out but we exercise that very very carefully and cautiously because we don't want to have our agenda in there and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, this is what it's about is about making sure you always have this strong pool of spiritual leaders to pull from. They're made. They don't just happen, in my opinion. Spiritual leaders are made. They're discipled. That's what has to happen. You don't, you don't, they don't just sort of naturally, like haphazardly, randomly, like, that, like that's not how it's supposed to work. Again, you go back to the way that Jesus did it. He was very intentional with his twelve. And we need to be very intentional, I think, in the same way. And when we're not intentional, then we're just sort of rolling the dice. And I don't think that's a great way to lead the church. And I think that's one of the reasons why the church is kind of in the mess it's in, broadly speaking. Yeah, Paul? Um, just being, having been in small churches, maybe two-thirds of my time, mm-hmm. I'm fully into this. I know that in a smaller church especially, there's conflict over the role of the pastor. Yep. And to free the pastor up to do what is biblically mandated, uh, it's very difficult for congregants to let like, go of yeah. the view of this professionalized shepherd who does all the member care. Yep. And um, what we've done, though, is rob people of the opportunity to grow in their obedience to Christ, yep. to the body of Christ, and care for one another. Yep. And so we become this proxy. Mm-hmm. We become a Roman Catholic priest on site. Mm-hmm. Doing all the priestly work as Protestants. Yep. Boggles my mind. Yep. But um, we, then we then we kind of like clog the church up. Yep. With systems. Yep. And programs. Yep. With the teaching 
well, you as a pastor or a teaching elder, a teaching elder would teach this and stand in that place of anxiety and um, uh, criticism for making a shift uh, towards this kind of model in the local setting. But I think it's necessary as leaders mm -hmm. to have the conviction of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit to apply this and begin to work hard with your elders to free the church from a view of itself and uh, that is keeping it stuck. Yep. So I, yeah, no, I think you're right. And I mean, I know in my first church that I served, um, the the guy that had been there for 20 years, my predecessor, really awesome man of God, he built his whole ministry on visitation. And when you're in the Deep South, if you're not in people's homes, like, that's super significant, especially in a small church like we were. And Burl Bennett was a, was a beast when it came to visitation. He was amazing at it. In fact, he told me, he's like, I'm a terrible preacher. But he's like, I'm great at visitation. And so they give me a lot of leeway on Sunday mornings. You know? And I'm like, well... Sort of the opposite of that. I'm a much better preacher than I am like a visit, visitor per se. But I still did some of the visitation. But when we established the role of deacons, we told our congregation, like, these are the folks that are going to be the ones primarily visiting you on a regular basis. If there's emergency, hospital, those, of course I'll be there. Be there. I don't care how, how early it is. I'll show up at 5 a.m. before surgery if that's what it takes. Like, I will be there every time, and I was there every time. But I'm not going to do the cup of coffee in the afternoons, drop by, kind of stuff. That's going to be our deacons. And our folks really struggled with that. And there was a lot of conflict around it. And I just said, well, I said, it's not that I'm not doing anything. I'm doing these other things. And these are things I think are, are biblically mandated and happy to have the discussion with you. But this is really where I feel like the Lord has called me. And again, we're not abandoning you. We're going to care for you, but it's going to be the body that cares for you. And you just have to, you just have to, stick, that, you just have to stick that out. You have to do it in a non-anxious way. And if you do it in a non-anxious way and you stick it out, guess what? The system eventually adjusts. They do. They do. But, you, but it takes time, and, it, and, it, and you have to manage your own anxiety in the midst of that because you're going to be letting people down. I mean, my favorite definition of leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can handle. So that, that's kind of like my, my modus operandi. And so you want to do that in a way that just helps people. And, and it was, it, like I said, it was super challenging for them. Yeah. But you know, there's another there's another phrase yep. that Peter Drucker culture eat strategy for breakfast. Yep. And uh, I think I'm speaking of ruling elders especially yep. teaching yeah, ruling elders especially in this room, you have a critical role in propelling your church in Christ like obedience by living into the very statement you started with. Yep. What is our purpose as elders? That's right, mind of Christ. Come up alongside your teaching elders and say, How is it that we can put you on track for what you're supposed to be doing. That's right. Whether it's your training that you need, encouragement, chastising you when you slip into your yep. own pursuits of your own needs, as opposed to the How is it we can saddle up next to you and do our role and um, shepherd the congregation? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing I'll say too is that um, one of the, my saving grace probably in Mobile was the fact that even though I wasn't going to do like the ministry of visitation like Burl did it, being in people's homes, you know, kind of rotating through the congregation in a systematic way, that kind of thing, I still did 20 to 25 hours of contact work a week. But it was all around discipleship, which is a totally different conversation than the regular visitation I was engaged in down south where 
you're basically talking about people's health concerns or Aunt Sally and her ingrown toenail and all that kind of stuff, like the superficial stuff. If they wanted to have a conversation about discipleship, I'd meet them anywhere, anytime, let's do that. All right, so they saw that I was still very relationally engaged, but, but, in, but, it, but I was setting the agenda, and the agenda was coming from Scripture. I still actually do that to this day. I still do 20, 25 hours of contact work a week. I spend about, that means I, I, I spend about 8 to 10 hours a week on my sermon which is a flip from how a lot of pastors do it. They might spend 20 to 25 hours a week on their sermon and then about 8 to 10 hours in contact work. I flip that on its head because I just think that the one-on-one, I think my preaching is, it's neither here nor there, it is what it is. It's, I think it's okay, but you know, I just realize that most people, like they have so much information coming at them that the words that I say, they just go in and out of their mind. Just you know, But if I sit down with them and we start talking about, hey, like, so this last week we talked about time and the creation of time and God giving us dominion over time. And I've had several conversations just following that up since Sunday. People like, can we sit down and talk about this? Can, can I show you my schedule and you can help me? Absolutely. Let's like do that. That's amazing. Right? That's the stuff of discipleship, I think. You may have your own convictions about that. But, so I think that's another thing in there too is that it's not that I just sort of sat in my office all day. Like, that's not what it's about. This is about discipleship. This is about getting with people and really digging in. Okay, and so that I think is um, really essential, um, making sure that you're really going deep with folks and you're not, not allowing the conversation to be hijacked by otherwise superficial things. How's the Broncos doing? How's the weather going? You know, how are these health concerns that you may have or maybe struggling with? Not that they're, you know, health concerns are important, but they're not the end all be all of everything. Finally, exceptions, um, or exceptions really in expectations. We do when we finally kind of bring this whole training process to a close after we've sort of identified some folks and poured into some folks. They've gone through our nominating process. Um, obviously, we have a, a specific training time where we take them through the leadership manual, take them through Westminster. We want to make sure everybody is operating up the same page theologically, have the same language theologically. All right, so when they come on session, they're really ready to hit the ground running and they're not going to need some sort of ramp-up time, six-month ramp-up time before they open their mouth. As I tell our session members when they come on, like, I need you talking from day one. How like, long is your officer training? Uh, it's usually uh, six weeks, and I lead it. So with the incoming elders as we're onboarding them. And, um, you know, again, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. It depends on their needs and, like, what are they walking in with. But, um, yeah, I want them hitting the ground running. I need them, I need them engaged from day one. I tell them, like, you're, you're called to be an elder. Be engaged from day one. Don't spend your first year sitting back. Like, that's not why you're called. We don't need that. We need engagement from day one. And uh, our folks have really embraced it. We have nine. Yeah, my, my personal conviction on that is no, there's not a church in this world that needs more than nine or ten. Not if they're leaders. If they're managers of programs, yeah, you might need more. You know, some churches have like 30. I remember Peachtree in Atlanta had like 75 or some crazy amount like that. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, that's like a church. You know, you can't get into, you can't really even function when you're that large. So uh, it's got to be, in my opinion, a small group because that, that's, a, that's what you need to lead the church. You don't need 30 people speaking into that. That's, a, that's an old school model. I'm sorry. Um, it varies from year to year. This year we have 73 yeah, it's crazy. Like, we just had all these people who felt called, and as we went through the nominating process, we were like, yeah, this person's called. Like, and now we're trying to figure out what to do with them all. What's your Sunday yeah. uh, About 700. And uh, we have about 1,000 probably who come on a monthly basis. Yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood, yeah. yeah. And so every 10 people, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so 
Yeah, we don't really have a set number we go for. We kind of roughly know like the range that we want to be in, and this year it's on the high range. So like I said, we're trying to figure out what to do with all these wonderful people who want to serve. It's great. So, so just yeah. on deacons. Yeah. Um, you run three-year terms? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, three-year terms, just elders and deacons, three-year terms. They can, they can re-up, and uh, then they have to rotate off for a year. Do you have set class uh -huh. sizes? Yeah, yeah. Well, not, not set class sizes for deacons, just classes. So whatever year they come in, they're part of that class. And so they might, there might be a bunch. There might, again, some years we've been a little thin, and we're like, okay, this year's going to be a little rough. We don't have enough deacons, right? Other years, like, this year, like, like God brought an abundance for whatever reason. So that was really are, cool. What are some of the things you talked about you want your elders really to be yeah. and not to focus on the do? Right. What are the things that you have your elders do? So, um, yeah, no, no, that's, that's a, I mean, I think that leads us into, uh, yeah, I tell you what, let me, let me jump a couple of slides ahead, because that's, that, yeah, we're headed that direction. So, well, let, let me just go over through this, and then we'll get to the next slide where we'll talk about that real quick. So, nominating process, the training process, and then the very first thing that we do as an elder team is we have a retreat. We, we do not start our time as elders or on session unless we have this retreat first. It's got to happen. And if real focus of this retreat happens in February, March of every year, is relationships. That's our goal. Our goal is to get into each other's lives, to get to know each other. You cannot seek the mind of Christ together unless you trust each other. And organizations move at the speed of trust. I don't know if you're familiar with that book by Stephen Covey. It's a great book. But organizations move at the speed of trust. And so, so we really want to be a small group, essentially. That's what we're going for. That's the feel that we're going for. Um, and so we spend time on that retreat praying together, um, some guided reflection together on scripture, like really getting into each other's lives, some small group time, that kind of thing. And uh, I just, uh, we did this this last retreat. I will never go back. Uh, if you can bring someone in and have them moderate so that you as a pastor can just be part of it, mm, do that. I just, we just did that this last year and I'm like, where have I? I've been so clueless. We should be doing this all the way along. And so thankfully we had a guy, uh, actually an inactive elder in our congregation who's really gifted at leading these kinds of things. He came in and led the retreat for us. He was awesome and allowed me just to be a participant. And that I really want to encourage that. So we do this. We do it off-site. It's a Friday night, Saturday. It's really great. And then what we do is a deep dive. In addition to the relationship stuff, we do a real deep dive on the state of the church. So we do the reveal survey every two years because we want to collect data about where people are at, what do they believe. That survey gathers data around what does your congregation believe, what are their personal spiritual practices, um, how engaged are they in the corporate community, okay? And they also, it also tells you where are they dissatisfied or where are they stuck spiritually. So you get a good sense of like what are the barriers that they're dealing with by and large. And so we gather that data, we do a deep dive on that data, and we start to wrestle with, okay, so what does it mean to address these things, whether they're stalled out or they're dissatisfied or they're really struggling. So for us, Pepsi, the, the three things that come up every single time we take this survey, we've taken it three times now, so every two years, so what is that, six years or something like that, uh, the three things that always come up are our folks struggle with isolation, they struggle with busyness, and they struggle with pain. So they feel disconnected, and the reason why they feel disconnected is because they're too dang busy. <laughs> and they do that for enough times, they end up in a world of hurt relationally. They end up divorced or their family breaks up or friendships or whatever. And so they end up in all kinds of pain. And it's like a, it's like a vicious cycle. And we see it all the time. And it's those three things that primarily keep them from following Jesus. 
And so we're always wrestling with like, how do we address those things and how do we engage those things and what do we need to do this year to really, you know, what, what tasks do we need to give to our staff to really implement to, you know, figure this out, help people find those connections, those kinds of things. You also want to, I think in this time, really discern like what is God calling us to as a church? Like what new thing is God calling us to as a church? As we're like paying attention to the cultural currents around us, like you better be talking about issues of sexuality. You better be talking about issues of race. You better be talking about these things. We should be leading these things from a gospel perspective, not lagging behind the curve. This is why I tell folks all the time, churches that I consult with, we don't have time for those arguments over musical style. We don't have time to, to fuss over like the color of the carpet or whether people can bring coffee in the sanctuary. Like people are dying spiritually all around us. Like we don't have time for these silly little petty arguments that, that have nothing to do with anything. We gotta be talking about how do we minister to the LGBTQ community? I, mean, I got a daughter, she's 20 years old, she's a lesbian. Like how do I minister to her and her friends? How do I reach them with the gospel, right? How do I, how do I sit down with racial minorities in my community and I'm in a pretty all white community that's upper middle class and all that kind of stuff. And so how, how do we sit down and we create space in our, in our community for racial and ethnic minorities to not only come and like, yeah, like we'll welcome you, but like we want you to be a part, like we want you to feel fully integrated into this community. And what does that mean in terms of changes that we're gonna need to make for musical styles or leadership styles or all of those kinds of things because different ethnic communities do those things differently. And I know for Pepsi, like it, we're in all-white Parker. Well, all-white Parker is now starting to change and these international families are coming in. We now have Malawian families and Indian families and Asian families coming to our church and they worship differently and they engage in church life differently. And we're going to learn from them and we're going to figure out how to get them into leadership positions because we want to, to go where the Lord is leading. But you've got to be out in front of those conversations as a session and thinking through all the dynamics that are in place there. It's very, very challenging. That's the kind of stuff we deal with on a retreat. And as we deal with that stuff, it kind of sets our agenda for the whole year in terms of where we're going to spend our time, session meetings, in terms of the quote-unquote business that we're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that's the challenge God is really placing in front of us, friends. And we've got to be able to deal with these challenges. Like I was talking to my daughter, she and I went out for lunch for Father's Day, and she just went to Pride in Denver, and I was asking her, I'm like, so tell me, like, what really... I mean, I, I helped write the position paper for human sexuality for our denomination. So, I mean, you know, like, she and I are, like, w as far, uh, you know, opposite on this issue as we possibly can be, but we have this great relationship. So I'm like, well, tell me about, like, what attracts you to pride. And, like, she starts talking about community, and she starts talking about all these things. And I was like, and you don't find those in the church? And she's like, well, by and large, no. And I was like, well, what about our church, Pepsi? Like, where you grew up? And she's like, you know what? I do find it there. And I was like, that's awesome. And so we start talking about like what that looks like and relationships and how she's loved and all those things. Like those are the conversations I'm telling you. People in your congregation, moms and dads and grandmas and grandmas, they're dealing with it. And how are you helping them? How are you equipping them? How are you guiding them and directing them in these kinds of conversations as their kids are coming out to them about whether it's gay or transgender or all these different things that are going on in our culture today. It's crazy, right? And so rather than just be like, oh, we're not going to deal with that. Like, how do we engage that? And how do we lead with the gospel in that? And build these relationships across all these barriers. The gospel tears down every dividing wall of hostility. That's what, it, that's what Colossians says. So I believe that, so let's go do that. 
Like, what does that mean? How does that look? Does that, those are the things your elders need to be thinking about, praying about, talking about, and then leading your people into, okay? You had a question back there. Uh, yeah, I was asking about your primary uh, struggles. You said isolation, busyness, disconnectedness. Yeah, and, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, disconnectedness and isolation are the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And again, I don't know if that describes your folks, but it certainly describes ours. Our, our folks are so busy, they're just running hither and yonder, and it's like, man. We run into that, and that's why yeah. it's hard to get people involved in stuff. Yeah, so, because they're so busy. if you're not encountering this already, you will. So demographically, they've done the surveys. The average evangelical Christian goes to church once a month now. Once every three to four weeks. So if you're not seeing that, you will. We're seeing it. So even though we average about 700 in attendance, I bet our worshiping community on a monthly basis is probably 1,000 to 1,200. So how do, you, how do you create a ministry and minister to people who are only present in your facility once a month? Like, like that is a real question. That really stresses out staff and resources and all kinds of things because they're just not showing up as often as they used to. That's just a reality. There's too much other things going on. In the Denver area especially, kids sports and all that kind of stuff, man. There's no sacred days anymore. When I was down south, Sunday was still church day. Wednesday night was still church night. You didn't have sports on Wednesday night and all that kind of stuff. They made space for the church. Not true in Denver. And I grew up here and so it doesn't surprise me. And that may or may not be true in your area. But I'm just telling you, that's where the country's headed. So what does the church look like when it's lost home field advantage? Because we've had home field advantage for, you know, 100, 200 years, right? Everything was closed on Sunday. Why? So everybody go to church, right? That kind of thing. Those days are gone or they're, or they're leaving. Um, and so, again, what does it mean to do church when your folks are coming once a month? What does it mean to do church or how do you do church when your folks are, um, I mean, they're running from activity to activity to activity? What, what, how does it mean to do church when, you know, more and more of your folks are products of divorce, broken families, all that kind of stuff? You can't count on a nuclear family anymore. And think about how many of our programs are designed for the nuclear family. And yet millennials are not getting married. Oh, by the way. So, like, I know a lot of churches struggle to reach millennials. You've got to think about singles. Like, what does it mean to include singles in community? What, what does that look like for you? And again, especially if you're going to like minister to the LGBTQ community, you're going to call them to celibacy and singleness, then you better have some community for them. You can't call them to it and just leave them on their own. You've got to develop that kind of stuff. Well, so much of life in the church is geared for the nuclear family. And what happens when the nuclear family sort of is blown up and it's not that way anymore? Now you have grandparents raising their grandkids and, you know, you've got aunts and uncles and foster families. and I mean, just all kinds of stuff. Every iteration you can possibly think of. You know, on Mother's Day, I was, this family walks in and it's um, a lesbian couple and their two daughters that come to worship with us. And, you know, they walk in and, you know, it's on Mother's Day and I'm like, and I'm like, you have that moment like, okay, like how do I greet these two women on Mother's Day? Well, they're moms. And so I'm like, hey, happy Mother's Day and just loving them, embracing them. And I mean, there was that moment where I was like, this is so weird. Like, this is not how I grew up, you know? And yet, that's just life. That's life now. Okay, so like, what does it mean to lead with the gospel in the midst of that? Those are the things that we have to be thinking about and wrestling with and pondering. And so those are the things that, um, again, we tackle as a session. And we wrestle with as a session, as elders. Yes? Do you have any resources on that specific topic? 
Uh, I don't. Um, I don't. I think. I think a lot of that's being developed. I think people are recognizing that. Like Barna has done all the research. Yeah, and people are like going, okay, so like, what does that mean then? What does that mean for how we organize life together? What does that mean for how we deploy resources? What is? Yeah. So what we do as a church, I'll just give you what we do. Is one of the things I require is um, I require our staff. Um, that the basis of our ministry is not the programs we run, it's the contact work that we do. We, 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 I require my staff to spend 20 to 25 hours a week off-site doing contact work with people. That's just, that's just baseline. Because they're not coming to our programs. So we've got to go to them. And so like I talked to our men's ministry and I said, look, I'm less interested in a men's ministry and I want to know how are we ministering to men. I'm less interested in a women's ministry and I want to know how are we ministering to women. Like, how are we meeting people where they're at? If they're only coming once a month, how do we create community for them? How do we, how do we help them stay relationally connected? Because their biggest problem is isolation and disconnection. So, like, we have the responsibility to do that. Now, they've got to make some choices, too, for sure. But, like, we can reorganize the way we do life. So, I, I am so, I'm, like, never in my office. Because I'm always down at Fika, which is the coffee shop on Main Street, and that's where everybody goes. And so I'm there, and I'm greeting people and meeting with people all day long, you know. And again, it means that I have to give up, like, sermon prep time. I mean, I spend, like, 8 to 10 hours in sermon prep, and I just trust the Lord that, like, it'll be okay. Like, he ha- it, 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 it'll be enough. And it is. It always is. And so I'm, I'm thankful for that. But I just think you have to, like, think in those categories. For me, like I said, contact work is king. And, and so we're big on that. And that's been pretty successful for us in helping people stay connected. Um, and so uh, that's just a, something that I'd encourage you to think about. And I just think that's how it's going to have to be. You know, you just cannot count on people coming to your programs anymore. In fact, our youth program. So um, our youth pastor, Dan, he does twice a month, he goes over to Legend High School and serves a thousand grilled cheese sandwiches to the students. They love it. They think it's like the best day ever. And because he's been doing that for a few years, they asked him this last year to lead the Big Idea Project, which was this big volunteer project at the high school. They actually asked him to lead it for the school. So he did. But as, as he gets more and more involved in the high schools, what, what has to diminish on his plate? Youth group. Youth group. And I told him, I said, diminish youth group. I said, like, do something. But, like, that's no longer the center of your program. Guess what? The center of your program is now located at Legend High School. That's where we need you. My middle school director, she just met with the mental health professionals at the middle schools. And they want her in the middle schools this coming year, like, all the time. And I was like, great. And she's like, well, what do we do about youth group? I said, we'll figure it out. Like, like the heart of our youth ministry program is shifting now away from the weekly youth group event now to ministering to students in the schools. And we're being asked to go into the schools. So guess what? We're going to go into the schools. Because who gets asked to go into schools anymore? No one. Thankfully, we're being asked. Great. Praise God. But, but we're having to shift how we think about our programming. And now all of a sudden we're evaluating Dan as a, as a youth pastor. It cannot be how many kids does he have coming to youth group. Because that's not the heart of his program anymore. It's how many contacts is he making at the local high school? How many guys and gals is he sitting down having lunch with, a drink, you know, Coke with, or whatever after school? Like, how engaged is he? That, that's changing how we look at his position. It's changing how we evaluate him. It's changing how we think about the whole thing. That's just that, the same exact thing kind of happened with us. Yeah. And then he, he just went to another, he's finishing school. Okay. So he left. And then we were looking for a volunteer to fill the Right. 
Yeah. Yep. So that's like a Young Life model, yeah. if you're familiar with Young Life. So that's essentially what we've gone to, which is kind of natural for us anyway. But um, I just would encourage you to think about that. And not just for our students, but think about it for our adults as well, because they're in the same boat. They're in the same boat. you got to go to them. Show up to a soccer game. Yeah. Absolutely. So great. Now let's minister. Yeah. So, and then don't just do it yourself. This is part of what you're training your elders to do. So going back to your question, Paul, like what are we like actually looking for? What are the outcomes of all this stuff that we're doing? How we shape our session meeting, these one-on-one -on -one discipleship times. What, what is it we're actually going for from our elders? Well, these are the things that we look for in our elders. We want our elders to truly serve as spiritual leaders, meaning we want them to be doing like all the home communion. They do all the home communion in our church. They love going out and visiting our, our homebound folks and sharing with them God's word and serving communion to them, the sacrament. It's so, such a blessing. They're doing, so many of them are engaged in Bible studies, leading Bible studies, helping, helping facilitate conversations around scripture, really leading people to deeper levels of knowledge in their scriptures, those kinds of things. Our folks, um, we now have a practice the last couple of years where after every worship service, our elders come down front and they are available to pray with anybody who comes down. And it took, you know, because we're Presbyterian, right? So our Presbyterian folks don't like do that, right? And so it took a while to break the ice and our elders felt a little awkward, but that was okay. And so we just kept said, just keep coming down. And if no one comes, then just pray over the congregation just there silently. No big deal, right? Well, eventually people now have started coming down. The ice is kind of broken and now it's a thing. And our elders are leading that time. When there's people that are struggling, like maybe they're going to surgery or cancer or those kinds of things, with regularity our elders gather in between services to do the laying on of hands and the prayer and the anointing of oil for the sick. We do that with regularity because that's what James tells us to do and our elders are very comfortable doing that even without me or another pastor there to lead. If we don't, if we don't get there in time, they're into it. They don't need us. Which is fantastic. All right, now we love being a part of that, but they don't need us, which is great. So we want them to serve as spiritual leaders. We want them engaged on those levels. The other thing we want is for them to model a Christ-like life. So when you become an elder at Pepsi, one of the things you are required to do is you are required on a Sunday morning to stand before the congregation and you are required to share with them your life, your testimony, where God is at work in your life. You're required to be vulnerable before the people. We require it. And so the tagline we use is, I'm a broken man or a broken woman following Jesus. And here's what God is doing in my life right now. And we encourage people to do that. And that has been so great because it humanizes our elders. It helps people see, like, no, these guys like, and gals, God's not done with them. Like, they're still a work in progress. But they are a little bit further down the trail than we are. And so we can follow them and we're going to do that. And so we lead with vulnerability. That's a big thing for us. Because that's, that's the only way people get to see what Christ-like life looks like, is if you lead with vulnerability. Um, we, I look for to see how many of our elders stay engaged even after their term on session ends. Like, do they stay engaged as a spiritual leader? Do they serve in different leadership capacities? Are they willing to go and like, you know, a lot of our elders are willing to wade in to say, if a couple's having conflict in their marriage, we'll have elders sit down with them and talk them through. Like, then they're more than comfortable doing that, most of them. Right? We had a problem with our mission team a few years back where they kind of got off track and they were really struggling. And I asked two of our elders who, were, who had rotated off session, said, can you guys go in and can you like kind of clean up that mess? And they went in in a very nice, gentle, 
but firm way, kind of nuked the committee and started all over again and got that group going. And man, they are doing so awesome. And it's because these two elders were willing to like wade in and for two years commit time to that process. And that was really awesome. So we look for uh, opportunities to continue to engage our elders even after their terms on session end. And then another thing I look for is do our elders develop spiritual friendships along the way? Meaning, like, do they still love getting together? Again, even after their term on session end. So yesterday I was just with a group, a smaller group of elders, like two or three of them, and they get together once a week for lunch just to talk and to continue to share life together. And they've roped in some other folks into that little group. And they've got this like Monday, morning, Monday afternoon lunch group or whatever, and that's just been fantastic. And it's been great to, great to see. And so those are things that we have done. And those are outcomes, again, that we look for. Um, and uh, one final thing I would recommend that we do, which has been really fruitful for us, is once a quarter we get um, what we call our leadership core together. So that's any elder, anybody that's ever been ordained an elder, active or inactive, any deacon, any ministry leader, staff, and their spouses. Those four groups. And for us, that's a group of about 150 to 200 folks. And that group gets together once a quarter just to hang out. We have a nice meal together. We engage one another. We pray together. We talk about whatever the Lord is leading us to. And that's, that's really a time for us to cast vision and that represents really the core of our congregation. And as that group stays energized, man, our whole congregation stays energized. And so our next opportunity to do that is going to be here on July 7th. We're having, we have, normally have multiple services on a Sunday morning. We're going to have one service up on the hillside outdoors and, you know, have this big, like, party and picnic and all that kind of stuff and worship together. And it's going to be really awesome. And those things just have a way of really just engaging people and keeping them plugged into one another and, Again, encouraging and excitement and all that kind of stuff and a real joy. Because if you're doing ministry together and it's fun, man, it's awesome. There's like nothing like it, right? I mean, it's like the best thing ever. And so we try and look for ways to be able to promote that together. Yeah. So how do you create space for the introverted elders that God's raising up in your body? I mean, a lot of these outcomes mm -hmm. are, are the extroverts are going to you know be all about it. How do uh -huh. you create space for... Yeah. God to so I think, yeah, so I think introversion and extroversion is a little bogus. And I tell our introverts that. Introversion, by definition, is simply where you get your energy from. It's not, I mean, it's not shyness. It's simply where you get your energy from. And if you get your energy from being alone and you're more introverted in that way, fine. Like, do that. If you get your energy from being around people, that's fine too. Like, these outcomes are in no way dependent on introversion and extroversion. These outcomes are just expectations that God has for his elders. Now, some elders, of course, are going to have relationships with like 500 people. Other elders might have relationships with like five people. That's fine. Like, I don't care. But, but, but again, I find that that whole introversion conversation, by and large, and again, this is not true for everybody, but by and large is used as an excuse not to engage in relationship. I mean, I, just, I have had so many conversations with folks who are like, oh, I'm just such an introvert. And I'm like, so what does that mean? And what, what they're really talking about is they're shy. Mm -hmm. And in our culture today, and if you read all the literature, because of the technology and because of those things, we have lost an ability to do relationships. We don't know how to do relationships anymore, like face-to-face -face relationships. So that's really what they're talking about. It's less about where they get their energy from and more about the fact that they recognize that for them to build a relationship with Jeff, like this is going to require a lot from me and I don't know that I want to do it. And what I do in those things, in a very tender but, but also very firm way, is to say, no, Christ compels you. 
you don't really have a choice. Like the body of Christ is connected. Now, again, you don't have to be like me. I'm a raging extrovert, so I love meeting with everybody and all this other stuff. You don't have to be like me, but you do need to be meeting with some people. Right. But so, in, in, in your model, mm -hmm. your elders meeting with people, yep. there's, there's going to be differences in, mm -hmm. in your elders. Absolutely. Uh -huh. and, and how do you lean against the comparison? This person's a better elder because they're connected to 50 people. I'm really invested in five. Yeah, how do you, so how do you help them. I would say we haven't really run into that. Um, I think I had one elder mm -hmm. express that concern one time, and I was like, it doesn't matter if you're connected to five or 50. And I don't know, it just didn't take much. It didn't, like, we don't really, we don't run into that mainly because we don't, we don't, I don't think we necessarily set up the comparison. Like, like I'm not sitting there asking the elders, like, hey, how many did you meet with? And how many did you meet with? And how many did you meet with? It's more like, tell us about the people you're meeting with. What are the quality of the conversations that you're having? And everybody feels like they can contribute in that conversation. And so we don't necessarily elicit the comparisons. So I haven't run into that yet. Um, I have had elders who have told me like, you know, initially like, well, I'm pretty introverted and, and I'm like, so wait a minute, like, like, I don't see in scripture where introversion and extroversion matters. What matters is, do you have a heart for people? Well, you have a heart for people. Okay. Like, let's just start there. And again, you're only going to do whatever you have a capacity for to do spiritually, right? So I've got a capacity for lots of relationships in my life. If you're more introverted and you don't have that capacity, that's fine. But you've got to go deep with the relationships you do have. That is important. And that anybody can do. And so that's uh, probably where we focus the conversation. Um, hopefully that helps. I don't know. We just haven't had like the big comparison thing. And it's not like everybody at Pepsi is a raging extrovert like me. So they're not. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So you're describing what your elders do. Um, you're describing a lot of actual ministry. Yeah. Ministry. You're not yep. describing a lot of... Um, ministry management. Correct. Yeah, we don't we don't do any of that. Those two setups though require I think different things in terms of processes, staffing things uh -huh. as well. When you got to your church, was that already present there, or have you had to walk it through a organizational process to allow for that? So no, I had to walk it through, but the guts of it were there, so it, it didn't it didn't cause a whole lot of conflict. Like for Pepsi, it was pretty easy. For my first church, it was really challenging because they were so used to thinking in terms of program management, and that was the role of the elder. And so shifting, it took us years to shift from out of that mindset to the new mindset, and and I really got it set, and then and then the Lord called me up to Madison. So like I mean, I didn't even get a chance to really get it embedded, um, and so. Um, yeah, so, you know, I just, yeah, I think it, it, it is. It's a total mindset shift away from what I would consider to be a Christendom model, a model of church that sets itself up um, to basically manage church life within a broader cultural context that is friendly to it. Like, that was Christendom. Like I said, Sunday mornings reserved, Wednesday nights reserved, like all that stuff. We're not in that anymore. We are now trying to figure out how to, how to set up a model for church in a, co in a cultural context that is largely hostile and growing more hostile by the day to biblical values. So what does that mean? And how do we do that well? And that's what it's going to require, really, a paradigm shift. And um, for my part, you know, again, as we're still experimenting and exploring on this thing, I think you've got to put all the freight on the relationships, not the organization. I wonder so. if... Like 
how to get the session out of discussions about landscaping. Right, yeah, that does, yeah. Like practically. <laughs> yeah, like, so yeah, not doing so that. You mentioned something like one yeah. of the big challenges you have to reveal yeah. culturally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Present yeah. big discussions. Yep. You suck the air out of the small ones to some extent. And totally. Yeah, I don't leave any oxygen in the room for that kind of stuff. And if people and if people start to go down that road, I'm like, yeah, like let's talk about it offline. Like let's go grab some time. If you have some concerns about how we're landscaping, like sure. I'm like, oh, actually, I don't do that. I'm like, go talk to my administrator. She'll talk to you about that. But when I was in the small church as a part of, I was like, yeah, we can talk about how to cut the bushes. Like not here. Like if you want to grab a cup of coffee tomorrow, let's do that. And then, you know, when I sat down one-on-one -on -one with them, I was always quick to leverage those conversations into why are we talking about the bushes? Like, what's the anxiety that you're struggling over? Like, let's get below this or beneath this or figure out what's, what's creating the problem. So, burning yeah. Bushes. Yeah, right. That's right. Burning. Burning. Nice to have burning bushes. Right. <laughs> Doug, share a little bit more about the training of your elders. What intentional themes, you were just now talking a little bit about some of the big social issues. You also mentioned earlier um, you're taking some time to part of the Westminster session. Mm -hmm. so, yep. Could you talk a bit more about what you intentionally think if you're mapping out for the next five years, I've got to train my elders every year, new ones, and these are some of the elements. Well, I, yeah, I, I don't make it issue specific because the issues are always going to be in flux and they're always going to change, right? So, but, but some of the things that are common, the common other stuff... Other than sin. Right. The, yeah, the common stuff is like, again, what's the theological foundation? Our theological foundation is Westminster. Yes. So one of, the, one of the key things that we, I really work hard with my elders on is to be able to differentiate and discern between essentials and non-essentials. Okay? And that's that whole exceptions process and all of that kind of stuff. Like, we really dig into that and ask ourselves, what are the implications for if we have differences of belief, if you have an exception to this, what, what's, the, what's the implication of that down the road? Right? those kinds of things. We want to establish a common theological foundation, a common theological core, so to speak, that, that then whatever decision gets presented, we're, we're, we're going back to that foundation and we're operating off of that same place. And so, so I, just, I just keep coming back to that over and over again. The leadership guide's excellent. Um, taking folks through that gives them the history of the church, kind of de deals with some of this higher level stuff. I mean, like for instance, like like, if we really believe that God, and I know we do, that God is sovereign, then doesn't that make us feel less anxious about the direction our country's going in? I hope so. Yes. Like, God's sovereign. Like, he doesn't need America. He got along quite well without America for, you know, a long time. Like, he'll get along after America's long gone. You know what I'm saying? That's not to diminish the grief that we may feel over the direction of our country and some of those things, but it, like, again, that common theological foundation, God is sovereign, Right, the Bible is, you know, is God's word. It stood the test of time. So, yeah, like, sure, there's all kinds of stuff out there attacking the Bible and the veracity of God's word and these kinds of things. But you know what? Like, it's kind of survived for a few thousand years because guess what? The Holy Spirit preserves the word, not us. So, like, again, pressure's off on some of those things. Like, that's where we ground a lot of these discussions. So then, no matter what the issue might be. Um, we're trying, we're, again, we have this common theological understanding that we're working from versus when I was in the PCUSA, I never knew. Not necessarily my church, but like when I go to Presbytery. No, we were not operating on the same page. And if you, if you came from the PCUSA, you know what I'm talking about. It was really uncomfortable because it's like, okay, like we're not even in the same living room here, like having this conversation. How in the world are we going to make a decision on this? Well, we're just going to have a fight and whoever has the most votes wins, right? 
So like we don't want to, like I'm telling you, the EPC, it, it, we could go that direction if we're not careful. Like, I mean, it, theological drift is, is, we're just as susceptible to it as anybody. So we have got to always come back to what's essential, what's, what's non-essential, and, and what, what's at the core of who we are, and, and all of that kind of stuff. I find that I, that's where I place most of the emphasis in my formal training. And then the informal training, like I said, which is the ramp up to all of that, it's, it's really establishing, like, what's your quiet time? What's your devotional life like? What's your corporate devotional life like? Those kinds of things. Where are you serving? You know, those kinds of things. So, yeah, you bet. Um, so, I, you know, just to kind of finish up here, and then we can, like, do questions or whatever, uh, finish up early if you guys um, want to. You know, when you start to talk about next steps, uh, where, where do you go from here? If you're sitting you're thinking to yourself, like, oh, my gosh, like, I don't even know how I would begin. The first thing I would say is um, just, just meet people where they're at. Right? You're starting with a group of people. No, no one's starting from scratch unless you're a church planner. Um, so you've got a group of people that you've inherited or the, a group of people that you have. You have who you have. So you've got to meet them where they're at. And you've got to say, like, what's the next step for them? And maybe the stuff I'm talking about is like 10 steps down the road. Well, don't try and go from 0 to 10. Like, just go from 0 to 1. Like, what's the next step for them? And break it down into a process and trust that the Spirit is going to lead and guide you. And that as you do it, what I've found is that this process is a way of like just picking up spiritual momentum. All right? And so I don't know how many of you know Stuart Briscoe. He's sort of a famous guy. He came and did our um, missions weekend a few years back, and I got a chance to sit down and have lunch with him. And I asked him, like, like tell me like how you do leadership. And he had this great way of phrasing it. He said, you know, he goes, here's what I try and do, Doug. He's like, I try and meet people where they're at. I try and go at the pace that they want to go at. And I try and, you know, get them to the result that they want to get to. And I'm like, what a... What a disastrous leadership style. Like, that sounds horrible. Like, the people don't know where they want to go or what they want. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, because I'm in relationship with them, they end up coming and trying to meet me where I'm at. They end up trying to go at my pace. And they end up trying to go to the outcome that I want to go to. And so we end up sort of meeting in this wonderful middle place. And that's probably where the Spirit wants us. And I was like, right, no wonder you're so brilliant. Like, dang, that was awesome, you know? And so... Um, so, that, I mean, that, that I think is the deal. So you've got to meet them where they're at. Wherever they're at is where they're at. So now just take them that next step, whatever that looks like for you guys, okay? So that's number one. I would, um, I would just say, also another thing, ask for the freedom to experiment. Like, ask the session, like, hey, can we take the next six months and, like, do our agenda this way and just give it a whirl and see what happens. And at the end of six months, we'll evaluate, and if you guys don't want to do it, why, we'll bag it and go back, you know? A lot of times sessions are willing to do that. And what I found, again, is if you do that well, of course they're going to love the spiritual growth and the spiritual nurture. They're going to find their hearts really resonating with that. They're never going to want to go back. Okay? So just encourage you to do that. Of course, you, you know, if you're a teaching elder here and you're the moderator of the session, you're the one who sets the agenda. So you do have a lot of influence over what you do in that meeting. So this whole notion of turning sessions into spiritual communities to a large extent rests on how you lead and how you shape that agenda. Um, do that one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Start meeting with them one-on-one -on -one and just pouring into their lives. I'm telling you, if you start pouring into people's lives, they love that. They, they'll feel so valued and so honored. And so the, the most natural thing in the world will be for them to want to honor and value you in return. Okay? But start by just pouring into them and just loving them and just coming alongside them and doing whatever you can to encourage them and support them along the way. And then I'll just I'll, I'll finish with this wonderful phrase from um, Saint Benedict, who um, 
you know, if you know St. Benedict, he established his Benedictine rule all those centuries ago. He has this great line in his rule for abbots as they're establishing these monasteries. He said, as you're, as you're running your monastery, essentially you want to do this. You want to give the strong something to aspire to and the weak nothing to run from. I just love that. I just think it's brilliant. That's totally how I do ministry. That's how I preach. That's how I teach. That's how I lead. I just think that's the way to go. So I just encourage you to think about that. Like, what does it mean to give the strong in the midst of this session something to aspire to? What does it mean to give the weak nothing to run from? How do we do that together? How do we do that well? Keep everybody moving kind of at the same pace. All right. Let's do that and, and see where it takes us. Um, and I think, like I said, as you do that, you do that prayerfully. You'll do that well. You'll see that the Lord will really lead and guide you. We've got about a you know, half hour, 20 minutes left or whatever to, for any questions that you might have or maybe you want to head out or whatever. That's fine too. Um, just make myself available. So whatever we need. Yeah. Uh, easy one. Would you be willing to do a one-hour Skype with our session? Of course. Okay. That's an easy one. And number two, if I caught you right, each quarter you meet with 12 one-on-ones. Yeah. Nine of them are your session. Mm-hmm. Elders and three other guys or six guys from your church. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, the last one. Uh, I'm not a teaching elder. Yeah. What about where Paul says, "Let the world not squeeze you like a tooth in toothpaste." You ever feel comfortable teaching your people, saying, "Hey, you know what? Sunday is Sunday. This is the day we come together." Oh, I'll, yeah. I tell our folks. Get away from this. Yeah, yeah. Once a month. Yeah, yeah. Trust me. Oh yeah. People grow that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I absolutely. I, you you talk to my folks. They know that I, I there are four things that I harp on, week in and week out, day in and day out. And they're the four things that my when I first became a Christian, my Christian. I have a mentor who's been my mentor for twenty some years now. He said, "You do these four things, and you will grow in Christ. Have a daily quiet time with God. Every week, gather in worship with a with a local church." Find a small group of people to chase Jesus with and find a place to serve. You do those four things over a lifetime, you'll grow in Christ. Like, that's, that's it. So I harp on those things ad nauseum with my folks. So yeah, like, yeah, we don't accept this notion that, I just like, like that's the reality, but like we certainly are not like encouraging it because we recognize there is a divine rhythm that God has hardwired into our lives. And if you're not, Living in alignment with that rhythm, of course you're going to be anxious and depressed and addicted and all these other things. Like, like that, that shouldn't surprise you. Like, take responsibility for yourself and your schedule and all those kinds of things and make better decisions, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Great question. Other questions or thoughts or comments? Yes, sir. So, like, our church has a tradition of focusing really highly on high-quality teaching. Uh-huh. Yep. Astro-theologian kind of models, uh-huh. which seems to be a difficult bridge to go from that to that. Can that function with this? I, I think I function that way. I mean, our teaching is pretty high quality, and um, I'm not judging you on the No, I no, absolutely. I, I think I think they do. I, I like what I, what I don't think this is a good fit for is that pastor-theologian model that says I'm going to spend 30 to 40 hours in my office preparing for a message. But that has less to do with the pastor-theologian part and more to do with, like, the model part. And you can be a pastor-theologian. Paul was a pastor-theologian. He didn't spend, like, 30 to 40 hours, like, in an ivory tower somewhere, like, preparing to preach. He was with people all the time. Jesus was with people all the time. Like, the models we have from Scripture are not the models that we've been pursuing the last, like, 50 to 100 years in the the local church. We just have to grapple with that. 
Like that was built for a cultural context that was where the, the, the pastor had a very specific role in society, you know, but the reality is, is that now people can go online and get a TED talk in 15 minutes and it's pretty dang good. Like, so the, 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 the difference that's going to be made here, I think, is again, in terms of how you get with your people. And it's, it, I think it's returning back to some, some models of ministry and some models of doing, again, ministry the way that we see in the New Testament, those kinds of things. I know folks who, I have friends who do the like 30 to 40 hours a week, and they're great teachers. They're phenomenal teachers. Amen. Like, but I got to tell you, I, maybe, and maybe it's just me. I love preaching. I love preaching. I, I mean, I love preaching. But I just don't think it's as effective as it used to be. Our people are just inundated with information. They're on information overload. They get, the average person gets like between 150 and 200 emails a day. They cannot process the amount of information that is coming in. And I'm not saying we should get rid of preaching. I don't think so. I think it has a, it has a certain role, and it's a very important role in the life of the church. But I, I, I just think that you've you got to look beyond just the pulpit time. That's not the only place we preach. There was a resource so, uh, back from the model report. So we started, it was the A.D. Bruce. Yeah, Training of the Twelve. Yeah, I'd, really, I'd, I'd encourage everybody to get that book. I mean, it's out of print, I think, but it's just a fantastic, it's a big book. I mean, it's, you know, it's like written in the 1890s, so it's all that weird language, you know, the, you, know you kind of have to like shift your mind. And, <laughs> but it's, it's, a, um, it's just a great reminder that, you know, the Lord is, is moving and, man, there's just, I mean, yeah. So, yeah. So as a ruling elder, I want to thank you for bringing some clarity to my life as far as um, taking our vows seriously. Yeah. And and about relational. And you said, when session members leave their role, they should grieve their loss as the brothers yep. brother and sister. Yeah. And um, I felt that and I've been through that. Great. And, well, it's not so great because I'm getting ready to go through it again. Oh, okay. Because yeah. I'm a doer. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm a doer. And, uh, but to try to figure out where as ruling elders we need to fit in even though that we're not on the session. Mm. To continue that leadership and to strive for that that goal yeah. or you know, finishing the race strong. Absolutely. And then possibly coming back on yeah, sure. the active session. So I want to thank you for that. Yeah. I did, I did struggle with the loss of mm-hmm. Well, that speaks well of your session. You know, some people, like I said, I've talked to some ruling elders, and they're like, oh, thank God, I'm, I'm done. You know, I did my time. I'm out. Um, which is always heartbreaking on some level. So that's great to hear. Yeah, we'll go here and then here. You mentioned that you go to Africa a couple times a year. Yeah. Share with us what you've learned from the elders in Africa. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, talk about different. I've been there. Talk about a different paradigm. I mean, they just, Absolutely. they, um, but it's, yeah. Directly to what you're talking about. Yeah, well, part of it is, right, is like, so they still live in a developing world context where community is everything. We don't live in that world. So, so that's, that's a real cultural gap. Um, so because for them community is everything and their whole life is embedded in a village system and has been for centuries, like there's some of this stuff that they just get. They don't even have to think about because it's just sort of how they live, which I just love. Um, and um, because they this is how they do life, like, you don't even have to teach them this. Like, they just, again, they just sort of naturally live into it. And so when you start to talk about, um, 
accountability, for instance, like, well, that's just embedded in their system. That's just what they do. You start to talk about like leading, and that's just naturally what they do. They just they don't have these pastor-centric models that we do over here in the states. And oh, by the way, that's not like a mega church, small church thing. Like, I think just the American church is pastor-centric. When I was the pastor of an 80-person church, it was a much it was as much about my personality as the church I serve now, or as the mega church, you know, whatever. So like, we get in like these false dichotomies and stupid binary conversations where we're just basically attacking brothers and sisters. Um, and it's because of our insecurity. But um, they just don't have those. Now, interestingly enough, right, I mean, is because our global world, internet, and all that kind of stuff, unfortunately, I think that's, that we're in danger of exporting that model. Um, which is why, and this is just Doug Ressler's opinion, like, I think the days of sending white missionaries overseas are over. And I don't think we should do it. That's my personal opinion. Um, I have great friends who are serving overseas as missionaries, but when you're talking about 60 to 80 grand a year for them and their family to serve overseas, in Africa where I'm at, it, since 2010, we have planted, no, I'm sorry, since 2000, go, we'll go earlier, the, one iteration earlier, since 2002, so that's 16 years, we have planted, using only indigenous church planters, we have planted uh, over 4,000 churches and seen almost 600,000 people come to Christ. I don't know anything even remotely close to that from a Western missionary centric model. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't, there's nothing. For $3,000, I can plant a church, I can send a missionary out for three years into the field, for th one time investment of three grand in Ethiopia that will keep that missionary and their family in the field for three years and they will plant multiple churches in that time. Yeah, absolutely. And India is another place where it's at. It's unbelievable. So the, the work we're doing now um, in Ethiopia, they've moved into South Sudan, Uganda, Djibouti. They're talking about getting into Somalia in the next five years. They're already talking about going to Yemen. So you think about that. Mecca is literally right up the coast from Yemen. And I believe before I die, they'll be planting churches in Mecca. Well, that, that's, that's what we're talking about. Like, let's just, like, let's just like, rip the heart out of Islam and turn them all to Jesus. That's what these guys are doing, and they're dying, and they're being persecuted, and they're suffering, but they are getting the job done in a ways that, that I don't think we are. So that's just Doug Russell's opinion. I mean, I'm not here to, like, you know, that's a whole other conversation, but I just think that these are things that we have to really think our way through, because if we're not careful, what we export is, is Western culture and a, a, a pastor-centric model that says unless a white person's involved. I remember at Princeton, this was about made me throw up in my mouth. Um, after I graduated, a friend of mine was uh, at his graduation ceremony and they had this like, guest speaker who came in and literally said with a straight face, wherever there is a work of God in the world, you can be assured a Princeton grad's involved. And I about barfed. I mean, how arrogant, right? And yet he said it was straight face. My friend was like texting me. He's like, I cannot believe this guy just said this. And I was like, that is a direct quote. He's like, yes. I'm like, oh my God. I mean, but if we're not careful, that's kind of the trap we fall into. Unless I, uh, Westerners involved, we can't really trust, we can't really... There are just very few places in the world today where there isn't an indigenous church. A lot closer culturally than we are. So, just something for us to think about. And I think we, that... So, coming back to the United States, we have to think about that in our own context as well, because the nations are coming to us now. Like, we've got immigrant communities all over Denver. How do we reach them? How do they, they understand, how do we go and learn from them? How do, you know, those kinds of things. So, yeah, you had a question, then we'll go over here. Um, just regarding sessions.
session, one of the challenges, how do you keep your sessions and your elders, your ruling elders, from being the usual suspects? And to really develop and bring in, whether it's younger. And we have the challenge of we will re-up mm -hmm. a lot of the same elders, and we're not infusing new blood. Do you, do you make them rotate off at some point in time? Yes. Okay, so they got to rotate out a year? Yeah, because yeah, the Book of Order says you can serve like two consecutive terms and you can right. rotate off. Well, so like I said, going back to how we recruit and all that kind of stuff, that's all part of how we spread the, the wealth, so to speak. Um, we're also... willing to do it. What's that? Getting willing. Well, again, the system that, that I've presented to you is so exciting for our folks. We literally have people knocking down, the, like we have a line, like people waiting. We need, we need yeah, line. but it's because it's so valuable. That's the thing. What, what I'm talking about adds value to people's lives. And so if you do this and you do it well, like you'll have people knocking down the door wanting in. And so we intentionally, again, we're intentional about intergenerational. So we have, we have some of our elders are as young as 30, 31, 32, uh, all the way up, right? And so, um, and everywhere in between. And so we're really intentional about that. We're really intentional about, um, we have both men and women on session. We're intentional about, not we don't have quotas, but we're just intentional about these things. And... Um, Always looking for new elders, always looking for, and always looking for a mix too of people that have been around the church a while so that there's some history that we don't lose sight of, as well as newer folks. So it's just this interesting mix that we're always looking for and asking the Spirit to really show us who it is. Um, but, um, you know, I know some churches that have kind of made it a rule like once you serve your six years, you can't ever come back on. You know, and so, I mean, you could go that way. I just think that that seems like rather arbitrary. You know, let the spirit do what the spirit's going to do. But um, uh, so I know I know churches that have done that. Um, I just think it's it's you know I just think it's about being intentional and and t having the intentional conversations and the intentional prayers of Lord, bring us some new folks. But again, part of that is you creating a, a an environment in your sessions that are so life giving to your elders that you just have people like banging on the door wanting to be part of it. You know. Much right. That's that's my thing. It's got to be the best small group of the church. And so we have people that are like in line waiting. Please let, let us be in it. So we had a question over here. Paul, did you have a question? Uh, or did we leave you behind? No. I was kind of looking at dressing down Christendom by going with your overseas observations. I was by that question. Okay. okay. Great. We'll do one more and then we'll let you guys get out of here. Yeah. Have you spent any time um, teaching or leading um, the Eli group, Elder Leadership no. Are you familiar with it? Uh, I've heard the name. So. Doing some interesting work. Uh, Elder Leadership Institute? Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's precisely to do yeah. exactly what Yeah. That's why, yeah. Yeah. What I'm talking about is not, I mean, it's, it's kind of boilerplate for a lot of folks. I mean, a lot of folks are doing some great work on that. So that sounds like a great resource. Yeah. Um, well, thank you all for coming. I'll let you guys scoot out of here if you want to chat afterwards. Happy to do that. But um, appreciate your time. God bless you. A couple of questions. Yes, Dan. Uh, 